Amen, amen, amen. Good to see everybody here this morning. I, I, I mean, I thought maybe the cold weather might run some folk off because, you know, when it gets cold, especially for a bald-headed man, it makes you want to stay inside. Now, I don't know how the, 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 the fasting and stuff works for you guys, but it seems like when I'm doing, uh, uh, spending some time fasting, I freeze to death. And you know I got a lot of insulation going on up here. But uh, I get cold, and, and, and I never get cold. But, uh, you know, the Bible says the fat belongs to the Lord, so I don't want to lose all of my fatness here, you know, during this fast. So, But uh, it's good to see everybody. I want to ask you to be in prayer. I'm going to be traveling quite a bit in the month of uh, February. I'm going to be traveling out to western Kentucky. Uh, then the next week I will be up in Xenia, Ohio, and then the following week, or maybe that's March the 1st, I'm be in uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, so uh, lots of traveling going on, and this is a new, uh, uh, a new uh, place that I've never been before, and uh, just keep me in your prayers, but if you've got your Bible with you, I want you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 12. <coughs> I want to talk to you this morning uh, about victorious prayer. And fasting alone is really just going hungry. But all fasting is intended to be coupled with prayer. I mean, you can starve yourself to death and never touch the heart of God. So we want to fast. When we fast, we want to fast with the right motives. We want to fast with uh, sincerity, with with sacrifice and all that goes along with, with abstaining from food, but fasting without prayer is incomplete. Every time prayer or fasting is mentioned in Scripture, it's coupled with prayer. And so I want to talk to you about victorious prayer. Everybody here is fully capable of praying victorious prayers. Let me say that again. I thought we'd get an amen out of that, but... Uh, Everybody here is fully capable of praying victorious prayers. Now, a lot of people feel like that they're inadequate when it comes to prayer, that they don't know how to pray effectively, that they're not eloquent or they, they can't pray long, extensive times of prayer. And, and, and so often we just allow our flesh and our feelings to keep us from uh, the primary thing that we ought to be doing, and that is seeking the face of God. And so I want to give you a few things this morning that hopefully will encourage you that will hopefully burden you, that will hope, uh, hopefully uh, provoke you to spend more time in prayer because the greatest revelation you will ever receive about prayer is that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Now, I know that's very simple. Uh, I know that's very, uh, uh, it's not very deep, but when you fully grasp the reality that there is no limitation on prayer, that prayer can go anywhere, that you can't go do anything that, that you can't do. When you understand that God uses your prayers to accomplish things on the earth and in and through your life, it's the greatest revelation of prayer that you'll ever be able to, to really grasp. 
And, and so we've, hear, we've heard this so many times, and, and it almost you know, sounds like a religious, uh, repetitious uh, saying, but God answers prayer. And, and maybe you've never been in a place where you needed God to move on something, but I promise you, if you've never been in that situation, you will be in that situation, and prayer will be the key to bringing victory in your life and the lives of those that you're praying for. So, Acts chapter number 12, we're going to start reading at verse number 1 down through verse number 11. And if you're there, say amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass or persecute some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so that when he was arrested, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So what we see here is that uh, persecution has arose against the church. King Herod has martyred James, the brother of John. He actually was beheaded. And because he saw what, uh, that this pleased the Jews, and that, that he saw and it motivated him to uh, arrest Peter, put him into prison with the full intention of doing the same thing to him. So that's what's happening right now in this context. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in, pres uh, in prison, but constant prayer. The Amplified says it like this, fervent and persistent prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And Herod was about to bring him out. That night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. In other words, they were trying to prevent him from escaping by all means possible. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone into the prison. And he struck Peter on his side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out, followed him, and did not know what had been done by the angel, if it was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and they went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. But Holy Spirit, we need you to breathe life into this passage of Scripture that it may grip and arrest our hearts to pray victorious prayers. Or we know that Peter was in prison and they were intending to martyr him, but prayer was made to God for him by the church. And that prayer brought victory in the life of Peter. Teach us how to pray victoriously. For we know, Lord, our battles are won on our knees. 
Bless your word today. Let it bring forth fruit a hundredfold. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Victorious prayer. Now, what we see happening here in Acts chapter number 12 is that a series of events have taken place and has caused a huge wave, wave of persecution to break out against the church at Jerusalem. The Bible teaches us that King Herod had stretched out his hand to persecute some from the church. We know according to the first three verses that not only were, was persecution taking place, that, that Herod had James, the brother of John, killed. He was, his head was cut off. He was beheaded. He was martyred for the gospel. And because he saw that his actions pleased the Jews, it motivated him to seize Peter, have Peter arrested, and then have him thrown in prison. Not only was he thrown into prison, he had the full intention because he knew that this would further please the Jews. He was going to put Peter to death, I believe, in the same way that he had put James to death. Now, this motivated him to uh, even become more extreme in his decisions and, and in his actions. And so Peter is now in prison, and Peter is such an important prisoner that the king assigns 16 people to personally guard Peter to make sure that he does not escape. Not only does he have 16 people personally guarding him, he is in chains and he has a soldier on the right side of him and he has a soldier on the left side of him all chained together for the very purpose to make sure that, that he does not get out because he knows that if he continues to remain in the place where he is, that the king's going to kill him and he's going to gain popularity among the Jews. Now, the church is fully aware of what is, about, is what's about to happen to Peter. They're, they're fully aware that Peter is going to be put to death. They know uh, the motivation behind what Herod, uh, what Herod is doing. And so what can the church possibly do at this particular point in, in, in Peter's life that would be helpful for him? That brings us to this question, you know, what, what is the church going to do when Peter is found in this situation where he needs a miracle in order to escape certain death? Now, there's a lot of things that the church could do at this time. You know, the church could storm the prison and they could bust Peter out of jail. But that's not going to work. You know, they could uh, create signs uh, to protest King Herod's decision. They could call President Trump and demand that Trump release Peter from prison. There's a lot of things. They could protest. They could get violent. They could call people in authority. They could do a whole lot of things. But what is it that the church does in order to bring victory in Peter's life? The church prays. Now, the church doesn't just pray. The Bible says constant prayer. Not just constant prayer, but fervent and consistent, persistent prayer was offered. They couldn't storm the prison. They couldn't break Peter out. Social activism, activism wasn't going to be a solution for them. You know, 
uh, uh, going to people in authority and, and demanding that Peter be released, that wasn't going to work. But their first response is to pray. How often is it that we find ourselves or we find other people that we're praying for that are in need of a miracle, but the truth is the last thing we do is pray. Listen, prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Prayer should be something that, uh, that we are constantly, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Jesus said, your prayer life should be like this. He said, I would that men would pray always and not lose heart. In other words, I want you to pray and don't give up. Pray and persevere. Pray and persist. Pray and be fervent in prayer. This is what the church does. Constant prayer was offered for Peter under God by the church. Now these people weren't going to pray. They weren't just going to pray. They were going to pray until victory comes. We have to learn if we really want God to move in this church, if we really want God to move in our community, if we really want God to move in our family, we must learn how to persevere in prayer until victory comes. Jesus, on his way to the cross, spent three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane praying about what was about to happen to him. And I believe had he not prayed in Gethsemane, he would have never been able to go to the cross. The victory of the cross was won in the garden. And Jesus didn't just pray. The Bible says that he prayed until his sweat became like great drops of blood. And so he prayed. The Bible says that he offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and with tears unto God. If our Savior had to pray in such a way, how much more should we learn how to pray in such a way? We need to learn how to grab a hold of God and not let go until the answer comes. But in America, we are, we are in a dilemma. We have everything that we need within arm's reach and everything that we want in an instant. So therefore, when we pray and the answer is delayed, we are so easy to give up and quit. If we really want to see God move in our midst, move in our community, move in our lives, move in our family, we must learn how to pray until the victory comes. Now, Acts chapter 12 teaches us four things about victorious prayer. Now, when I'm talking about victorious prayer, I'm talking about praying until victory comes. Praying until the breakthrough comes. Praying until the answer comes. Persevering, interceding, travailing, birthing God's will in our life and in those lives of those that we're praying for. Now, four things I want to give you right quick. Number one, the partnership of prayer. The partnership of prayer. Acts chapter 12 verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered, listen, to God for him by the church. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. 
Now, I want you to know something. Prayer is simply partnership with God. Prayer is partnership with God. Now, God has chosen from the beginning of creation to work in the earth through man, not independent of man. Let me say that again. You can see from the beginning of creation, whatever God was going to do on the earth, he was going to use man in order to do that. Now, there's things that God does that are absolutely sovereign, that are uh, separated from what uh, man does, that God chooses to do. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But God was so committed to using man to accomplish his will on earth that Jesus had to become a man in order to redeem man back. He gave man in the garden absolute authority. He gave him so much authority. His authority was so complete. His authority was so total that when Adam sinned, he forfeited that authority and gave it to the devil. How do we know that's true? Well, the Bible says that uh, when Jesus was fasting and praying, he was led out into the wilderness, and Satan tempted him for 40 days. And, and Satan says to Jesus, he says, If you'll bow down and worship me, all of the kingdoms and their glory I will give it to you, for they have been delivered to me. Well, who gave them to the devil? Who gave the kingdoms of this world to the devil? God? Absolutely not. Adam. When Adam sinned, he forfeited that authority over to the devil. Therefore, we entered into a fallen state, and now we live into a fallen world, and God's will was not accomplished through that. But through his sovereignty, God began to work independently as sovereign God, but also interdependently through man Jesus became a man, went to the cross, lived a sinless life, died our death, was raised from the dead on the third day, took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and gave them back to man, gave authority back to man. And so therefore, we have become partners with God eternally. Now, I'm not talking about earning our salvation. So many people think that God's will is done every single day. That God's will is automatic. I would say God's will is rarely done. And I'm, I'll prove that to you here just in a moment. But prayer is partnership with God. God chose from the beginning. I don't, I don't want to just blow past this. I want you to grasp this. Because I want you to be able to take what we're sharing this morning and put it into practice. That's where the rubber meets the road. Thank God for inspirational preaching. We need to be inspired, but inspiration will not change you. Application is what changes you. Because information plus application equals transformation. It's easier to talk about prayer than it is to pray. It's easier to read books on prayer than it is to pray. It's easier to ask somebody else to pray for you than for you to pray yourself. But nothing's going to change until we learn individually and corporately how to pray victorious prayers. So, partnership in prayer. God has chosen not to work independent of man. He's chosen to work through man. And I want you to know something. Prayer does more than just motivate God into action. Prayer actually releases 
the Holy Spirit that's already inside of us to get things accomplished. Now, listen to me. Prayer actually releases the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us to get things accomplished. I don't want you to think that all of God's power is in heaven where His throne is seated. The Bible teaches us that He has made our own hearts His throne and we are the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, You're the temple of the living God, and the Spirit of God lives in you. All of God's power is not in heaven alone. God's power is within you. The Bible says God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can think or ask, according to the power that is where? Within you. Think about that. Within you is exceeding, abundant, above all power that is available that many of us has never tapped into. How do we tap in to that kind of dynamic power? The answer is through prayer. Prayer releases the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. Exceeding, abundant, above all power lives within us. And when we pray, power is released. God's power flows through human vessels. The Bible says that we have this treasure in earthland vessels. That the power may not be of us, but of God. In earthling vessels, the power of God resides and abides and is accessed and released through prayer. Are you with me? I want you to get this. This is how we partner with God in prayer. God releases His power through prayer and through people. That's the way He's always worked. Now think about this for a moment. Did Jesus not teach us to pray in this manner? He said, when you pray, not if you pray, right? When you pray, in other words, there's an expectation that we would be praying people, right? He said, when you pray, not if you pray. And he says, pray that my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Now, surely, surely God would not want us to waste our time praying about something that he was already predetermined to do in the first place, regardless of what we do or don't do. Are you, are you think, I want you to think about that. Surely he wouldn't want us to waste our time praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if he was going to do it already, whether we prayed or not. That is, of course, unless... Somehow, He has chosen to use you and I and our prayers together in order for that to happen. Think about that. Prayer is a huge privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. I mean, either the Lord wants the world to be like this, or He doesn't. Ian Bounds said it like this. He said, he said, 
the more prayer is offered, the more power is released and the better the world becomes because of it. I mean, think about that. I mean, we all have a duty, but that duty is a privilege and that privilege comes responsibility. We're not entitled to this. We've been delegated authority by God. We are created in the image and the likeness of God. We have identity as sons of God. We are ambassadors to the kingdom of God. And we are to bring and pray the kingdom of heaven down to earth. And God uses people in prayer in order to do that. That's partnership in prayer. Here's the second thing. The second thing is the power of prayer. Partnership of prayer. We see the church is praying to God on behalf of Peter. Now watch what happens in these verses. Power's released. Okay? Verse 5 and 7. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and light shone into the prison... And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And notice what happened. Chains fell off. Listen, victorious prayer breaks the chains off of people's lives. Victorious prayer breaks the chains off of people's lives. They weren't there physically, they were in prayer. But their constant, fervent, persistent prayer released power and an angel was dispatched in an answer to that prayer that ultimately and miraculously broke the chains off of Peter and set him free. But that wasn't the end of the story. See, listen, I wonder how many people that we know and love that are in bondage today simply because we have grown weary in our prayers for them. We have grown weak. We have given up. We have got cynical. We've become negative. We've got critical. We've been disappointed. We've, we've experienced setbacks. We, 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 we've experienced things that have caused us to draw back from the kind of powerful prayer that we need to commit ourselves to in order for victory to happen. Listen, your prayers can affect and influence affairs on earth. Do you believe that? It's one thing to mentally acknowledge you believe that. It's another thing to commit yourselves to praying that does release that. There's power released when we pray. Now listen, when it comes to prayer, I want you to know something. There are different levels of power that are necessary for different things to be accomplished. There's different levels of power that are necessary and needed for different things to be accomplished. Now the scripture makes plain that there are different levels of faith, right? You agree with that? There's different levels of faith. The Bible teaches that there's different levels of grace. Do you agree with that? You know what? There's different levels of love in which we love. 
And there's also, according to Scripture, different levels of power that are needed in order for things to be accomplished. Now, let me show you an example of this. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, if you can throw that up there. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord speaks to Elijah. I know you're familiar with this story. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy that judgment is coming upon the land and is coming in the form of a drought. And the Bible says that uh, Elijah went out and he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. Okay? But then if you skip down to verses 41 through 45, God speaks to Elijah again and he says, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, whose will is it for rain to come, God or man's? You know this. Wh whose will is it? God said this, right? A lot of people have the attitude that, you know what? If, if God said it, then bless God, it's going to happen whether we want it to happen or not. Well, is that true? Well, if that's true, then why was it that Elijah had to go pray? He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and guess what happened? Whose will was it for it not to rain? Well, if it was God's will, then why did Elijah have to pray for it not to rain? Because, bless God, if God's going to do something, he'll do whatever he wants to do, whether we pray or not, right? Wrong. So he prays that it doesn't rain, and guess what? It doesn't rain. But then, three and a half years later, God speaks to Elijah. He says, now go and pray that it's going, I'm going to send rain on the earth. And Elijah goes and prays, go to the next one. He goes and he prays, and he doesn't just pray. The Bible says that Elijah bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, What? What? I thought he said it was going to rain. I mean, if it's God's will, all Elijah should have had to do is say, Rain. Elijah can't make it rain, can he? No. Only God can make it rain. But could it possibly be that God was going to make it rain, but only if Elijah would pray? So he goes up and he prays, and he comes back, and he said, nothing. You ever prayed, and that kind of happened to you? Do you know what it's like to pray and then nothing happened? Do you know what it's like to pray and feel like that your prayers bounce off the ceiling back on your head? Do you know what it's like to pray and it feel like the heavens are brass? Do you know what it's like to pray and then when you get done praying, feel worse off than when you first started praying? Do you know what it's like to pray and feel like that God is a million miles away from you? He prayed. This is a great man of God. Same man that called fire down from heaven. Right? He prays and nothing happens. Listen, we have to learn when it comes to prayer that a delay is not a denial. 
God done had his mind made up that it was going to rain. But he was expecting Elijah to join him in birthing his will into the earth. For God's word to come to pass, it had to be coupled with prayer. And not just any kind of prayer. Not the kind of prayer that we say, now I'll lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul. The Bible says he, he got down on his knees, he stuck his head between his legs, and he is in the birthing position. He's in deep intercession. He's praying. He's believing God to send rain. And on his first request, nothing happens. So what does he do? He prays again. And you know what he does? He sends his servant back out. Guess what happened the second time? Nothing. Most of us would have given up after two tries. That's why we live in defeat. That's why the church is weak. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the church prayed for 50 days and they preached for five minutes and 3,000 people got saved. Now we pray for five minutes and preach for 50 days, and we don't see anybody saved. You know why? Because people are saved as a result of prayer being made on their behalf. See, we have no business talking to people about God until we talk to God about people. That's called intercession. I'm getting ahead of myself, but look. He prays once, he prays twice, he prays a third time, he prays six times. Nothing happens, but on the seventh time, he prays, and what happens? Rain? No. A little cloud about the size of a man's hand is formed, and Elijah gets up off the ground, and his prayers are finished. He prayed seven times. Why did Elijah have to pray seven times about something that God had already predetermined in his sovereignty to do? Now, the Bible doesn't give a specific reason, but I think we can look at a few things here and maybe find out. It doesn't say this, but this is what I believe. He prayed seven times. Why did he pray seven times? Because seven is the number of completion. God is teaching us through this example a very important lesson about prayer. And that is we must continue persevering in prayer until the task we have been assigned to is finished. Until the task that we have been given is accomplished. So he prays seven times. Seven is the number of completion. And God wants us to know, if you're going to pray victorious prayers, you must commit yourself to praying until the task is completed. Well, how do you know when the task has been completed? Well, you would think by this example that, you know, uh, it would rain, and therefore we know that God had answered our prayers, right? No. It still hadn't rained, but Elijah quit, uh, quit praying. Why? Because of the message that the servant gave him. What was the message? Well, there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. 
How did Elijah know it was time to stop praying? Because something changed in the atmosphere. Are you with me? When we are committed to victorious prayer, we can pray and continue to pray. And as we have this burden to continue to pray until that burden lifts, until something in the spiritual realm takes place, until something in the atmosphere changes and it affects what's going on in the natural in the earth, we need to keep on praying. But Elijah knew that his prayers had been answered simply because of what he saw in the atmosphere. When we're praying, and I know I don't want, I don't want this to be overly spiritual, but as you grow in your relationship with God, as we commit ourselves to becoming people of prayer, you will know when prayer has accomplished the assignment or the task that has been given to you. You will know that, just like Elijah knew that. He didn't go by what he felt. He didn't go by what he saw. He went based upon what he sensed in his spirit, and that cloud was all he needed to know that rain was coming. Some of you, you've prayed once, you've prayed twice, you've prayed six times, and you're on the verge of a breakthrough, but you are also on the verge of giving up. Thomas Edison said that many of life's greatest failures are those who did not realize how close they were to accomplishing their goal before they quit. And prayer is much more important than goals. So how did he know? Something changed in the atmosphere. Victorious prayer is praying until you know and know that you know that something has changed. That something, have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever had that happen in your life? Now I understand that we're just average people. But the Bible talks about Elijah being a man just like we were. But he prayed and it did not rain. He prayed again, and it rained. And then he said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If God did it for Elijah, he'll do it for you. Here's the third thing. The partnership of prayer, the power of prayer. Now here's the providence of prayer. Let's read this. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. In other words, there's something, for lack of better, better words, otherworldly that was happening in Peter's life that he wasn't fully sure that it was actually happening or not. Now think about that. Providentially, through the prayers of the church for Peter unto God, angelic visitation comes to Peter. Chains are broken off because power's been released. He's not fully sure that what's happening, whether it's real or not, but we'll find out it's very real. And he says, and then when they were past the first and second guard post, 
they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them, again, providentially of its own accord. And then they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed from them. Now, now what does providence mean? What does the providence of God mean? What does it mean when God moves providentially? God's providence is His extraordinary intervention in the life of people. Providence is God taking everything that is visible, everything that is invisible, and using that to fulfill His divine purpose. And listen to me, that includes your prayers. We don't always see God working, but I can promise you God is always working behind the scenes. You think about the story of Esther. Esther's a great example of the providence of God. If you read the entire book of Esther, you'll find out that the name of God is not mentioned one time in that entire book. And it's in the Bible. You'd think if it made it in the Bible that God would be mentioned in it. But his name is not mentioned. God is not mentioned one time in that book. But there's not one chapter in that book that you can't see God working behind the scenes. I mean, think about how Queen Esther became queen. You know what happened? The king got drunk. He called for his wife. His wife didn't want to fool with him because he was drunk. This offended the king. The king uh, excommunicated her, sent her off. And then he says, you know what? Let's have a beauty contest. Let's get all of the hot women in Persia and prepare them for 12 months for one moment and they better look good when they come before the king. So she prepares for 12 months. She comes before the king. The Bible says that the king had favor for her. Why? Because he was spiritual? No. Because she looked good. She became queen as a result of a Miss Persia contest. Read it. But providentially, God is setting things in order because if you'll read on in chapter 4, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you've been to the, to bring brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. She was a Jewish orphan married to the president of Iran. How do you think that would work out today? So providentially, God is putting all the pieces together behind the scenes in the invisible realm to set things up to accomplish His will. That's exactly the way prayer works. Sometimes we can see God moving, and sometimes we think God is a million miles away. But we have a promise in Scripture that says He will never leave us nor forsake us, but will go with us even to the ends of the earth. He said when we are faithless, He is faithful. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. He said, slaves do not know what their master does, but I tell you everything that I do. So even when you can't trace God, you can trust Him. Why? Because you're praying. 
Prayer is simply confidence in God that He is leading your life well. When we are prayerless, we basically are saying to God, we don't believe He's doing a good job. Wouldn't that be offensive? Well, prayerlessness is offensive to God. As a matter of fact, let me say this. Can you handle this? Prayerlessness is a sin. 1 Samuel 23 says, God forbid that I should sin against him by not praying for you. That's hardcore, isn't it? I didn't write that. But most people, we want to justify our prayerlessness by clinging to the sovereignty of God. And for some reason, it's hard for us to understand that God is sovereign, but He has sovereignly chosen to use people and He has sovereignly chosen to use prayer. What's hard about that? Does that limit God? No. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we think or ask. He will always have his will accomplished with or without us. Mordecai said to Esther, he said, if you remain silent at this time, deliverance will come from another place for the Jews. But... If you don't speak up, you'll face the consequences. And then he says, who knows if you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. What was he saying? He's saying, you know what? God wants you to participate with him in accomplishing his will for the Jewish people. But if you don't, he will find somebody else who will cooperate with him, but you'll suffer the consequences as a result of not. I wonder how much destruction is happening or has happened in our lives or in the lives of those we love simply because we did not want to cooperate in prayer with God. Now, I know that's heavy. I'm, I'm trying not to make it so weighty, but I want you to understand it is important for us to pray. Now, I'm about to wrap this up. Here's something very important that I want you to understand about prayer. And that is, our prayers accumulate over time. In other words, the more we pray, the more our prayers accumulate. Now let me show you this. Go ahead and go to the next one for me. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Look what it says here. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? Make sure you get that. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense that he should offer with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. 
and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to earth. And there was noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Our prayers accumulate. Now, according to these verses in the book of Revelation, listen to me, that there are bowls, plural, in heaven. Not a bowl, but multiple bowls. Not one bowl, but many bowls. At least more than two. And God gathers the prayers of the saints into these bowls and he stores our prayers until it is the proper time for him to release those answers. Are you with me? So I want you to understand every time you're praying, you've never wasted one moment in prayer. You've never prayed a prayer that wasn't important. You've never wasted a second in prayer. God is gathering these prayers according to these verses. He's putting them in bowls to release answers at the proper time. Now, according to these verses, either God knows when the right time is for them to be released, and I think that he does, or when there's been enough prayer accumulated to get the job done, he releases power to answer those prayers. So think about this. When enough prayer has been gathered, when it's been gathered in the bowls, when the prayer has been accumulated enough to get the task done, all of a sudden, an angel takes the censer and throws fire to the earth. The same fire that fell on Mount Sinai. The same fire that fell on Mount Carmel. The same fire that fell on the day of Pentecost. When prayers are offered up, when enough prayer has accumulated, that same fire will fall in your life. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's incredible. And that's not for, this is New Testament. Okay? So listen, don't give up praying for your loved one. Don't give up praying for this community. Don't give up praying about the things that are important to you. Because listen, once prayer has accumulated enough, the answer's coming. How can it not? You're praying until the task is complete. Then come the music, I'm going to wrap it up. Here's the last thing. The last thing is persistence in prayer. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel. And he has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, and notice what they were doing. Where many were gathered together praying. When Peter got put in prison, guess what? They prayed. When Peter got set free from prison, guess what they're doing? They're praying. They're praying until they are assured that the answer is coming. They're persisting in prayer. You know, it's been said that even the snail made it on the ark through perseverance. Even the snail made it to the ark through perseverance. And when it comes to prayer... 
easy just doesn't do it. Jesus spent many nights himself in prayer in order to fulfill his ministry. Before he went to the cross, he prayed three hours in the Garden of Gethsemane to find the strength to endure the cross. Hebrews 5, 7 says, And he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And then he gives us this command in prayer, Luke 18, 1. I would that men would pray always and not to lose heart. The number one quality and characteristic of victorious prayer is perseverance. I know that's maybe not what you wanted to hear. That may not be what makes you feel good and warm and fuzzy. But God answers persistent prayer. God releases power in persistent prayer. God does miracles through persistent prayer. God sets people free through persistent prayer. God changes lives through persistent prayer. God's will is done through persistent prayer and obedience to God. Persistent prayer is the key to victory, uh, to victory in all of our lives. The heartfelt, persistent prayer of a righteous man, listen, can accomplish much when put into action and made effective by God. It is dynamic and can have tremendous power. That's James 5, 16, the Amplified. I finish with this one story. George Mueller was a man that was known as a praying man. And one day he began praying for five of his friends to give their lives to Christ. And after many months, one of them got saved. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years before the fourth man was saved and Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for his fifth friend to come to Christ. And throughout the last 52 years he had on earth, he never gave up the hope that his friend would give his life to Christ. God rewarded his faith when soon after Mueller's death, his fifth friend that he'd been praying for came to Christ. You know, may God give us that kind of burden for prayer and that kind of burden for people. We can't say we want to see lost saved if our altars are empty. We can't say we want God to move if we have prayerless altars. We can't say we want to do God's will in our life if we're never in a place of prayer. And when you think about how God has designed the world, it's, it's almost terrifying. You know, why, why should we pray? 
because God works through prayer and he works through the prayers of people. God in his sovereignty, listen to this, has designed the world in such a way that much of what is accomplished concerning his will is directly connected to what man does or does not do. In other words, God allows man to make decisions that can influence history. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we must pray. We must pray. Stand with me. Do you need victory in an area of your life this morning? You need to find your place of prayer and allow the church to pray for you. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed of. God uses the prayer of His people to set people free. Hallelujah. Do you want to see your loved ones saved? To find you a place to pray. Do you want to see God move in our community and in this church? Then we've got to become a praying people. We can't just do church on Sunday morning. We can't just have programs and fellowships and although all those things are important, but the priority has to be placed on prayer. What does your prayer life say about you? Your prayer life will reveal either how humble you are or how proud you are. Because prayerlessness says, I don't need God, I'll do this in my own strength. But prayerfulness says, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. It's a miracle for us to breathe, you know that? So if you're here, you need victory in your life in any area. We're in a season of prayer and fasting. No greater time for you to experience that freedom than this morning. If you're burdened for a lost loved one, maybe you've grown weary, maybe you've lost your burden for prayer, I want to challenge you to get out of your comfort zone. Forget about what people think about you coming up and moving up here. Spend some time persevering in prayer. If you want to see God move in this church, in our community, as a corporate body, we have to come out of our comfort zone and respond like the early church did and pray until the answer comes. Amen? As they sing and as they play.